was the J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut, a movie podcast for movie buffs. This is Andreas. I am the creator and main writer of Films Fatale. We're celebrating the Olympics right now by doing all sorts of reviews of Olympic-themed movies. But in case you didn't notice, yesterday was the release of my top 100 music videos of all time. So exciting stuff there. Who else do I have with me? James here, digital content creator. I produce and release music under the A-list Booty Paul. I am one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. And I'm hoping this weekend to actually get some writing done for my future article on Films Fatale. Fantastic. Well, to complete the trifecta, I'm Rachel and I also write for Films Fatale. I have a column on world cinema and one on lost film. And those are two of my favorite movie topics. So it works pretty well. Speaking of our separate strengths uh this is um in case you haven't seen by the title here our august version of our monthly segment the cinematic smorgasbord so if you're a new listener what this is is there's three of us we give each other a movie to watch that we've never seen before and we all have different tastes and we report our findings so not only that we also have a monthly film that we watch all three of us together, and we invite you listeners at home to join us. So this month was the uh, very interesting Frankenheimer film, Seconds. We're going to get into that in a second, rather the second half of the episode. So First off, we're going to get... second. <laughs> <laughs> yes, precisely. Uh, uh, first off, we're going to get into our individual reports. So... What did James recommend to me? What did I suggest to Rachel? And what did Rachel, you know, offer to James? So with all of our very different tastes, but huge amounts of overlap, let's see how successful this month's smorgasbord was. So who wants to go first? I really want to hear what James thought of the Crazy Witch movie. Okay. I'll so go first then. <laughs> uh, what did Rachel recommend to you, James? And why was this so outside of your wheelhouse, but now it's your favorite movie? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was assigned Benjamin Christensen's Hexon. And let me tell you, I did not know what to expect. And then I watched it and it was really interesting. So for those who don't know what this is, this is a silent film essay about witches, which kind of sounds strange. It's sort of presented as a documentary. It's Yeah, it's a documentary, but it also isn't. It also has like this, this film stuff. And it's also attached to like these preconceived notions of mental health. So it's a whole amalgamation of things. It's like a satire, but also a truthful look at how the world perceives things. Well, 1922 and truthful. Exactly. 1922 uh, truthful. Um, the stigmas. Um, it's uh, okay. So James, please do continue. <laughs> so it's really interesting because it's broken out into seven segments. So it's kind of takes the vignette approach. And the first one is it kind of goes through the history of the perception of witches and the presence of the devil. And, you know, so far it, it, there's only, I forgot what the book is called, but there's only, they're dealing with a published work that deals with images and depictions of witches. And then each segment is kind of like a dramatized version of different scenarios involving witches and the devil. And I have to say the, the prosthetics and costume for the devil are so insane that you you just I recommend everybody watch this. I don't care even if you don't like movies, watch this. It's just really interesting. <laughs> like nineteen twenties like era depiction of the devil is just crazy. And this is far from your typical silent film. 
Yeah, it's definitely. Well, I was floored at how well presented it was and how well those shots were framed. I mean, dealing with a lot of earlier film lighting isn't the best, but also I also forgot how really strange the depth of field in the early celluloid looks like when you watch it, it's like there, you know, obviously those are the different frame rate. It was shot at makes for it, you know, interesting also because everything's kind of like faster than it would normally be. But yeah, it's, it's really interesting. These different scenarios. Cause you know, it, it deals with one, someone's going to a witch to get, you know, various different potions to put this monk under a spell. And then, you know, it deals with, you know, what happens if they find out someone's a witch or dealing with, you know, a lot of different witch trials are going on. Like, I think one of the methods to see if someone was a witch was, you know, tying them up and throwing them in a body of water. And if they sunk, then they aren't a witch, but if they floated, they were. And, it it makes me really concerned for back then because I realized there was a serious problem with anything that couldn't be explained was automatically deemed witchcraft. Exactly. Or something that they didn't quite understand. <laughs> and again, this goes back to like the mental health thing where it's like, if you um, were perceived normal by society, uh, you were possessed or you were the believer of the devil or whatever, whatever the hell it may be. So, you know, Christensen's film is so tongue in cheek, but also very dead serious. Like it's a very weird blend of hyperbole, but also asking you to understand exactly what it's showing. Oh yeah. And it's really only hokey because it's almost a hundred years later. It's yeah. literally 99 years old. Yeah, it's, it's 99 <laughs> years old, so it's a very, very old film. I was also not surprised, but also kind of taken aback with how sexist it is. Because oh, yeah. the whole thing is like, it deals with, oh, the devil lures women in and turns them into witches. And then the and then the women prey on the men and puts them under spells. And I was like, oh, yep. Yep, that's how, that's how it went back then. Oh, yeah. And the whole thing is so frank and so grotesque in showing some of these acts. I, I couldn't get over how explicit it was for 1922. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like a lot of it was meant to be provocative, but also in like, a, again, like a satirical way, almost like this is what people believe type of a thing, right? So I feel like that's a part of it as well. I don't know if he's fully insisting that this is real, if you know what I mean, but it's still, it's the 20s and it is, it is still problematic. Yeah, and it also, you have to kind of remember that all, this, all the stuff he's depicting was in century before because once he kind of goes into modern times it does go into the discussion of mental health like you know someone doesn't seem to be okay it's more of a mental they're put in an institution or something like that it's not necessarily you're possessed by a witch but then he begs the question it's like oh is it mental health or are you possessed so he kind of like starts to ask that kind of question like what's really going on and yet the way they handle mental health is terrifying absolutely terrifying i mean during that era, hysteria was still being treated, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I was also impressed. I forgot like how advanced like filmmaking techniques were even at that time, because a lot of that double exposure they were using to do different effects was actually really impressive. Mm-hmm. Like there's one where there was like somebody's soul leaving their body as they're like unconscious or like, you know, they overlaid witches on brooms over another like scenic landscape. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. They really were like... There was a lot of interesting stuff, even in the early days with all the experimentation. So I thought like just from a filmmaking perspective, it's really well made. Yeah, it's uh, 
it's as you said, it's a it's a whole series of techniques to try and get these visions and statements and again exaggerations brought to life. So even if some of its commentary is again tongue in cheek, the way that it's done for its time is incredible. I also wasn't expecting all the music to sound as cheerful as it did. Well, that Rachel, you'd have to tell me about this. Would that have been the actual music that was constructed for this? Or was this like a modern, perhaps, reinvention of what the score was? You know, I didn't look into it. I'm not sure what Criterion typically does with that kind of thing, if you saw it on Criterion. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it's really, really very individual, that kind of scoring. Yeah, I just wasn't sure what it was in this case, because I do know, like, like at some point, Silent Cinema started to actually get, like, its own scores, which was, like, the preferred sheet music that you would accompany with a film right so it's it's a case-by-case yeah exactly it's a case-by-case scenario i guess you'd have to look at the special features on um on the criterion channel to see what they did for all we know it was dead mouse like who knows (laughs) they they could have done that i know um i didn't realize this actually i don't remember if i read it on the box before i watched it when i watched fantastic planet i watched it in french with subtitles there is actually an english dub of it as a feature. Yeah. And I was like, Oh yeah. Cause they, they, they do all sorts of cool stuff like that sometimes. So yeah, it could have been music. It doesn't make fantastic planet make any more sense to have it in English, by the way, it just doesn't do oh, that I, I at don't, all. I don't doubt that. That's <laughs> that movie's just wild. But yeah, speaking of wild movies overall, uh, Hoxon was a success. Yeah. Um, also the, the specific word for the end that I saw in the last frame was, Kind of shocking, but oh, I have to remember no. in English, it's something completely different. Every person who learns Swedish as a second or third language comes up from English comes up against that word. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, 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 moving on. <laughs> There's no better <laughs> segue. All Swedish uh, listeners are dying right now, but anyway. <laughs> let that be the reason why you watch Haxon, because you have to find out how it ends. <laughs> on a side note, watch the Swedish ending of Finding Dory. <laughs> oh, yeah. That one is like uh, it's like the most pleasant way to be insulted. Let's say, huh? so, insult you guys. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, it could be a compliment. So, uh, on the note of Rachel, why don't we get into what you watched uh, this this month? So, uh, I, I guess it was the one that I recommended to you. Um, there, no, no insult at the end, no matter what the language is. What did you watch? <laughs> I watched the second several-hour historical Asian epic that you have assigned me. Um, Oh, my bad. (laughs) The Last Emperor. No, I really enjoyed it. Um, So for those who are not familiar with this movie, it won Best Picture around 1987. And it is this enormous epic story of Puyi, who was the last emperor of China, like the title says. Um, So it's a part of history I really don't know a lot about, but it was actually a really good pick because I've always loved the stories of monarchs. I've always been drawn to the first uh, third of the 20th century when so many of these monarchs were having their lives changed. There was a lot of upheaval, a lot of uh, dynasties collapsed, and this guy in China, Puyi, was one of them. So it goes through a story from the time he's a toddler to late middle age. And my god, what a commentary this movie is. It's it's about existing in a society that has no place for you. And so this man is isolated. He goes through so many different things, and everywhere he turns, something goes wrong for him. 
And he's always just a little bit, I've noticed in every single scene, even if it has nothing to do with the actual plot, slightly socially off kilter. Just, he never quite fits in because he was born in the wrong spot, basically. Yeah, it's interesting because as far back as his memory can go, he becomes the emperor when he's a kid. And most other kids are like out playing and having a good time. He wasn't even allowed to leave the Forbidden City. And he was like, no, you're the chosen one. And he may not have wanted to have been the chosen one. But no matter where he turns, whether it's being royalty against his best wishes to being, uh, you know, blacklisted and, and, you know, uh, targeted as like the enemy of the state to um, all sorts of different things. He just never, ever, as you said, he never, ever really fits in. But all of his different turmoils also paint this entire landscape of the history of China between its, uh, you know, its dynasty eras to modern day communism and, you know, their rift with Japan and everything else that was going on. His entire life encapsulates it. And the way that um, Bernardo Bertolucci tells this story so fragmented between the past and the present and, you know, how, how he's telling the story and what's coming up, it still feels so fluid and it's, uh, I know I'm jumping the gun here, but I think it's uh, easily, possibly the most underrated Best Picture winner I've ever seen. Like, I per- I've i seen some people say that it's uh, totally inconsistent. I don't really agree, even though I can see where they're coming from. Definitely because not. Of the, yeah, because of the, maybe the time shifts and, you know, the, uh, the purpose of each era, let's say. But I personally think it's one of the best best picture winners there ever was, especially of the 80s, and might be my favorite. I think also in the 80s, a lot of really long historical epics or like sort of bogged down in history movies tended to win. And so I think that The Last Emperor might have gotten lumped in with those when in reality, I think it's the most dynamic out of that bunch. Yeah, except for maybe like Amadeus, like those two films for me are like the best of like the 80s best picture winners. Um, The only qualm I would have, but this is really just being picky, Um, especially because it's Bertolucci and maybe it wouldn't have won best picture if it did this. The fact that it all takes place almost entirely in Asia, specifically China, and it's all in English that that sometimes throws me off, but that's, that's totally cool. Whatever, whatever works. I feel like if it was made today, it would have been more authentically like within you know, the language, you know, the, the, the realm of languages that would have actually taken place, whether they're, um, you know, they're Mandarin or Cantonese or, you know, Japanese. I don't think there would have been a lick of English, but that's that's OK. That's hardly a problem. I think that's also kind of a sign of when it was made. Exactly. Yeah, I was actually uh, glad I made the decision because usually... I only watch my own assignments, but I thought, you know what? Let's watch all of them. So I decided to watch it. And I was, I'm really glad I did because I think biographical pieces are one of the only ones that truly justify the length in presentation of being an epic movie, especially Mm. the setting and all of that. But I also like the story of the emperor because it's like this beautifully tragic tale of duality because while he's the emperor, he's living with, you know, he wants modernism. He's hearing about all these things outside and he wants to experience that. And he you know, changes a lot of things in there because of it. But also he's still in support of imperialism because he still wants to be the emperor. 
Mm-hmm. So when he does things like, you know, like when he's older and he has a, a tennis court installed, like that's such a strange thing like that normally wouldn't happen. But he was like, you know, I want to do this. I want to do that. And yeah. Also, I think the, the cast was amazing. I was yeah. really happy to see Victor Wong <laughs> because he only turns up every so often because like Three Ninjas was one of my favorite movies as a kid. And he plays the grandpa. And just to see him, I think he was his aide. I don't remember. He was the guy with the cricket at the beginning. And I thought all four actors, or was it three or four? Anyway, all the actors playing Puyu were excellent. Oh, yeah. yeah. They all did a great job. I, I, I think it was three, but still, regardless, yeah, they were all um, they were all fantastic. And obviously, you have Peter O'Toole as like the one super-duper familiar face who um, definitely plays a secondary role, but does it really well. He never really steals the scene. He lets whatever iteration of Puyi still still take the lead. And uh, for any Twin Peaks fans, Joan Chen is in here as well, uh, which is always a good sight. I couldn't pinpoint where I saw her before. I was like, I know who that is. <laughs> and then I looked it up. I was like, oh, it's Josie. Yeah, it's it's uh yeah, the uh, the Packard Mill. Yeah. <laughs> so um yeah, I I personally love this film and it sounds like it sounds like you had a good time with it too, Rachel, and I and I guess James, even though it wasn't assigned to you. So I'm happy to hear because I, I, I personally love it. Yeah. I, I love the window it gave me into an era I didn't know much about. Oh, so can we talk about the fact that not only did it win Best Picture, but it was nominated for nine awards and it won every single one of them? That's right. It Especially is. like all the tech stuff, like it's, uh, it's music, which is a blend of like, you know, traditional music and then just toss David Byrne in there because why not? Uh, you know, the cinematography is like jaw dropping at times. Just uh, Bertolucci worked with only the best cinematographers, which is fantastic. Um, yeah, it earned that slate of awards. Yeah, on a technical and maybe that's why it won Best Picture because of how how much it was an achievement in, in these artistic fields. But I'm happy it won either way. I feel like it's one that just, it doesn't really get mentioned all that much. When it gets mentioned, it's not because it won Best Picture. It's because people like Bertolucci or they like the film. But when it comes to like, you know, the whole Oscar narrative, nobody talks about it at all. And I think it's a shame. Oh, wow. That's too bad. That is very strange. (laughs) You know what else is interesting? I don't know if this is just me projecting, but it seemed like an interesting juxtaposition with tying in his history with the more current when he's in the prison. Cause it felt like the prison was shot much like a thriller would like the lighting and the framing. And then you just have this like epic, elegant historical piece kind of like intercut in between mm-hmm. like this. Yeah. This happy memory almost. And, uh, uh, regardless, uh, the forbidden city itself was a cell China, to him became a cell when they, when he was like, you know, pegged as this, um, as this, you know, this naysayer, you know, this outside voice. So he always felt like he was in a cell until, and I don't want to spoil anything, but the way that the ending kind of resolves everything. So metaphorically, I, yeah, it feels like it's like the only time. And look, I've seen so many people like that doesn't make any sense. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. That doesn't make any sense. It's it's a Bertolucci film. There's going to be some sort of a metaphor, a symbol in there. It's it's a film. Like it's 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 art. Is it what it's supposed have to, be explained. to be. Exactly, but it, it, it's a, it's a symbol for how he finally was free, even though it took him his entire life. So yeah, cool. 
Well, I'm, I'm glad you liked it. I guess we'll wrap up this first half of the segment with with my own assigned film. This one was from James. Yeah, what did I give you? <laughs> okay, so this one was very, very interesting. So I, I still can't believe that this was done by Craig Brewer, which is the guy who did Hustle and Flow right after this film, by the way. This is... As indie as indie cinema gets, this is The Poor and Hungry, uh, Brewer's debut film. It's a nice, lean hour and a half. It's a type of indie film where when you watch it, you can tell that there's like no budget, but a whole heap of vision. And that, like, even the way that some of it was edited so seamlessly or purposefully choppy, you could just tell that this guy was going places. So The Poor and Hungry is this very interesting film where you have this, this lead character who's a mechanic, but he's also, you have these different characters who do what they need to do to get by. And he's also somebody who like steals and pawns things at night. And it, it sets off this chain reaction of having come into contact with the wrong person and having to make amends and then something messes up and you have to make amends and something messes up and you have to make amends. And this whole setting up of these dominoes of just crap happening. And it all basically amounts to this, this really long climactic sequence. I can't even call it a scene. It's like a sequence of, what it feels like to be desperate. And if anybody has ever like just not had money and you felt like, you know, you just couldn't make ends meet. God, does this, does this film really hit hard? So um, heavily identifiable. And I mean, for an indie film, it, it, you could pretty much see this guy did whatever, whatever it took to tell this story with like, according to Wikipedia, $20,000. No wonder why he, he had films assigned to him, basically handed over to him to say, tell our stories. No wonder why he did after this. You know, it's funny because Hustle and Flow didn't come till five years after this film. And yeah, it's really, cause like, I remember when I first, like I used to like Hustle and Flow and then I liked Black Snake Moan. But when you go to this movie, you're not expecting it to be this good. You're like, oh, it's just a, a first no budget film. You're not expecting to see the mastery shown with storytelling. I mean, even the intricacies of the hustle he does, because and this isn't really a spoiler, but what he does, he's not only like stealing things and pawning things. He works with a chop shop that steals cars, steals all the parts, mm-hmm. and then they take him to I think do they take him to the the uh do they impound them or do they i remember i don't remember it's they somehow end in the pound and then with with all, all the parts with all the parts missing and then the people go try to collect their car and they're like oh well i can't drive it so they keep it then that shop buys them puts the car back together and sells it yeah so it, it's implied that it's not just these characters that are broke it's like they live in a broke society so like this is just how people get by they just are are screwing over each other all at all costs. So you don't ever feel like this main character is making brash decisions. You feel like this is just a society that he's a part of. Yeah, it's funny because uh, I I saw an article that said uh, I forgot the title, but it was it was referring to it saying it was his best film. And I was looking at it, I was like, you know, that almost makes sense because Fussle and Flow is all right, 
Black mm-hmm. Sigma was a little bit better, but it was like one of those things I was like, it's, you know, it's one of those things like you got to be kind of into it to like it. Uh, the remake he did a Footloose I thought was not great. Well, yeah, we don't need to get into that. <laughs> I mean, Dolomite is my name was fantastic. So I think that's one of the ones that compares. I haven't seen the Coming to America sequel yet, but. It was okay. It, it was, I would call it overwhelmingly okay. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it shows me what I appreciate about these no budget films because it seems like all these big directors who do them, you see where they're going with these first films. Like they're almost too good to be first films, especially with the fact it's so uninhibited because you know, you're not dealing with studio. You're not dealing with investors. You're just making art and being creative. And then it's just, just raw natural talent. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice to see where filmmakers come from, especially if they're some of your favorites. But to see something like this, I'm surprised he didn't do any other similar indie, you know, minimalist type films like this. It feels like this was only because he had to, but it would be nice to see what he would do with like, without this Hollywood budget again to see, you know, him at his peak. What could he do? Yeah, I often wonder that about every director. Like, why does nobody think, huh, let, let me go back to something really small. But, I mean, when you get the you get the job and the paycheck and to work with the big stars. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I, and plus, I mean, you get uh, outside of, you know, the studio meddling with censorship and stuff. You get to kind of fully realize some of your ideas a little bit better with this budget and, you know, this backing. So... Uh, you know, I guess nobody wants to, you know, resort back to square one. Right. But it would be interesting to see one of these days, like, like a Scorsese to see, like, you know, what could you do with like one setting? Okay. I don't like bringing up this guy a lot because for obvious reasons, but somebody like Roman Polanski has done stuff like this with like, you know, um, carnage, some of his later material. Um, he's basically like stripped down, we know his films like as if they're back to beginning, that's probably a funding thing for obvious reasons, but I guess that's the closest answer we have. How'd you feel about it being in black and white? Oh, I didn't have a problem with that at all. I'm used to black and white movies. So oh, I wasn't so, asking more so that, but like the black and white almost seemed too appropriate for the story. Yeah. Because, um, at times it feels like you're watching like a security camera almost like you're, you're like spying on these people. Um, it also kind of flattens the image. So a lot of like the lighting kind of like clashes even more. So it adds like the sense of like anxiety. Um, I felt like it was very appropriate for a multitude of reasons. Yeah. Also, I really like the character development and just the characters themselves. Like the, just, I don't know. It, it seems like, he wrote about people he knew. That's what it felt like. Yeah. Like he, he personally witnessed this stuff happening. Like when there's like these fights on the street, you feel like he actually saw this downtown somewhere. Like I've got to, I've got to add this to my story because it's just too real. You know, that was the port hungry. So that's what we were recommended to watch for this month. But now we're going to watch, some other stuff next month, but you've got to wait to see what we're going to recommend to one another. You've got some other business to attend. The movie we recommended to all of you listeners. So uh, this is something that none of us have watched ever before. And uh, it was my pick this time around. And I have seen this pop up in so many criterion groups. 
I've always wanted to check out John Frankenheimer's Seconds, which has become this whole cult classic, especially within the scope of Criterion fans. What? <laughs> I feel like all of my picks are always like the strangest ones. Uh, what did we think of Seconds, guys? How did this get made and released in 1966 with a lot of mainstream Hollywood you. backing? I could not tell you. I just want to say one thing about this. I appreciate any movie that turns out to be one big Twilight Zone episode. Yes, that was yeah, what, what I was thinking like. the entire time. This is a Twilight Zone remake, basically. Like, I was waiting for Rod Serling to come out and, like, do his monologue. It's also got some pretty yeah. heavy Invasion of the Body Snatchers tones. It's interesting you bring up the Twilight Zone because, um, you know, John Frankenheimer is associated with, like, a, another type of show. He's associated with Playhouse 90, which... Twilight Zone had like, you know, short episodes and longer episodes, but Playhouse 90 was known for having these hour and a half long serials. So perhaps if you mash the two together, you know, like an hour and a half feature shown on TV, but also the Twilight Zone, what are you going to get? You're going to get Seconds, which is a film where you could basically start a new life. I was anticipating Seconds as in like time related, but no, really, uh, my understanding is it's the second opportunity to live again. So you, you, it's this weird, I don't even know what to call it, if it's the present, if it's the future. This reality, let's say, where... The Twilight Zone. Um, <laughs> uh, you're entering another dimension of time. Anyways, uh, you know, it's this other, this other reality where you can fake your death, assume the identity of somebody who's already died, and start a new life. So, I recall when this film first started, because it's also shown so abstractly like uh first off shout out to james wong Hao, whose cinematography was like the mvp of this picture but they certainly utilize it very heavily even from the get-go you're like what am i watching uh all i can tell is that this is very strange there's like a lot of like fisheye lensing and oh the snorri cam inserts that he shot exactly i got so tired of those i'm sorry <laughs> i love when snorri cam is in anything it just creates a so surreal effect yeah, it's like all of these crazy things going on. And then you start to finally like kind of piece together, okay, uh, this is happening. This guy, he's got this phone call, la-di-da. But then you're like, isn't Rock Hudson the star of this film? And then you quickly discover why Rock Hudson is the star of this film. Because this new body is that of Rock Hudson. So it's so weird. If you were to... Cut like the the second act, let's say, and shove it to the beginning. This would be a completely different film. But knowing what led up to a lot of these excursions and and events, you it just feels so surreal. Like you're 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 like living this 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 life almost like 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 you're not a human being. You're like this mannequin, this living mannequin, this mechanism or this this object. Within the realm of the universe. Again, if you just watch that second act on its own, you'd be like, wow, this is some great cinematography. This is a great capturing of a slice of life. But knowing what you know, it feels so uncanny and weird. I can't imagine how thrilled Hudson must have been not to be in yet another blend rom-com. <laughs> well, uh, this is this is like basically the antithesis of everything else that he was in. It's like this is like completely unromantic, despite the fact that there is a romance. This is completely not charming. Like this is a very, very um, I wouldn't call it difficult, but it, it certainly was not 
at the height of the mainstream of of its time. Like this 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 was very against the grain. What was <laughs> like, interesting was I checked out a trailer from the time because I always look at the marketing and they were very frank about what it was. The trailer itself spoils a good chunk of the movie, so be warned if you're checking it out. But also, like, it didn't get quite as explicit as the film, but there was a lot of stuff that I would not have imagined being in a trailer from the time. Like, they had a lot of scenes of the party sequence, and really frank. Yeah. And... Well, I'm guessing that's why it didn't make its budget back, which is unfortunate to say the least, because this was for sure interesting. I mean, when it comes to Frankenheimer, I still, I'm still going to say mentoring candidates, the best thing he ever did. But the point is he's always, he, he always tried to make interesting thought provoking things. So why did I like to mentoring candidate? Because it was a political film that didn't hold itself back. It went as far as it could go for its time. And when it comes to something like a psychological thriller like this, this, yeah, this, between the uh, the whole thing with the teeth and um, <laughs> um, so many of the other absurdities, whether they were the bookends of the film or like just trying to live this new life in the middle of it. This was very different, let's say. it's. I can see why it's a cult favorite. It's very different. I think had it been made 10 years later, it would have done better initially, but it would not have achieved its reputation after. If it was made 10 years later, I could only imagine with the allowance of the new Hollywood movement, how much further this would have gone. Oh, it would have been insane. This would have been crazy. And the marketing really played up the Cold War anxiety surrounding it. Yeah, that's also true, too, where it's like you're not feeling comfortable within your own society. So there's that side of it as well. Yeah. I really appreciated Actually, I appreciated this in the same manner I appreciated World on a Wire. I love sci-fi that deals with a practical story because there's no like crazy special effects. There's no like I, I wouldn't say otherworldly. No, it's not otherworldly concepts either. It's just this idea of it's almost kind of dystopian where you know you could just get rid of one identity and just like be inserted into a new one. It's like realistic sci-fi, so to speak. Yeah, also dealing with an organization that's almost kind of like this secret society that no one knows about, unless you know somebody. It's the, I know a guy who knows a guy, go talk to them and they'll take you to such and such. Yeah, so it's so hush-hush that if you ever brought up like, hey, I've swapped bodies for somebody, nobody would believe you because it's like not publicly discussed in any capacity. I also love how the organization <laughs> runs on a, a referral system. Yeah. <laughs> It'll make more sense to listeners if you watch it, but yeah, it's really it's really interesting how that plays out. It's surprisingly bureaucratic, which the Twilight Zone does too. So, well, yeah, the, the Twilight Zone <laughs> absolutely. If you love this new body you've received, please tell your friends, your families, your dogs, your pets. <laughs> like it's like okay, uh, it's it's not like that if you haven't seen the film, but uh, in a way, it's still like like you said, James. It's a, it, it is like a referral system where it's like. My life is completely different. Let me let me tell people that I, I want to help. So it's weird. It reminds me a little bit, if we're going to bring up the Twilight Zone, a little bit of 
um, both Eye of the Beholder, where it's like, you know, the restructuring of, of the face, and also um, the number 12 looks like you, yes. where you're you're trying to pick out, like, this new body that you could be, but you're not going to be happy with whatever you end up with, but there's still this, this very alien feeling of deciding who you want to be, but then you're not yourself. Yeah, number 12 was the one in my mind the whole time. Yeah, it, which uh, both... Top 10 episodes of The Twilight Zone, if you haven't seen them. Um, yeah, so seconds. Uh, would we want thirds? Did we like it? <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it was really good, too. Again, I do prefer some of the other um, Kregenheimer stuff that I've seen, but I totally get why this has a following, and I would not be opposed to watching this again. I think especially its cinematography and a lot of its... Um, existential themes and the ways that it feels so frigid, I think are fantastic. Loved it. Okay. Cool. So we are actually going to get into our next month, what we're all going to be watching. James, I believe it's your turn. So what are we all, what are we all going to watch? So this is all three of us as co-hosts and also listeners at home. So as you, if you notice, if you've been listening along, I've decided to kind of go with the theme for my pick and it's, Something, you know, it's got to be eccentric and off the wall. So first we did Shaft, it's a black exploitation fic. And then we did Under the Cherry Moon, which starred Prince, which was kind of a fun experiment to see you guys react to that. So I was trying to think, what would, how do I top that? Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm a little scared. <laughs> Already worried. <laughs> so I decided to go with Sergeant Kabuki Man NYPD by Lloyd Kaufman. Okay. Uh- I, I can tell you this. I have not seen that. This is going to be okay. memorable. <laughs> what in the hell? I think I've heard of this before, but uh, I, I couldn't tell you a single thing about it. This is going to be strange. So this is the film by Lloyd Kaufman and, and, and Michael Hertz. This is, um, I don't even know what this is. A superhero comedy, according to Wikipedia. This looks like a whole mashing of genres, action, comedy, uh, sure. <laughs> let's let's do it up. So, uh, Sergeant Kabuki Man, NYPD. That's going to be everyone's assignment for the month of September. So, look forward to that. Uh, I'm sure we all will. All right. So then we have our three individual episodes, or I mean, uh, recommendations. Oh, this is like Christmas for us. So we're we're stupidly excited. So we're gonna basically go the opposite way around. So instead of James recommending to to me, I'm gonna be recommending to him, and then James to to Rachel, and la di da la di da. So who wants to go first? Should we go in the same order that we went? Okay, let's go with. Uh, I'm gonna recommend you, James, first. Okay, so whoever went, they're gonna receive theirs in that order. So. James, uh, I know you're really into indie, and you're also into, you know, filmmaking as an experience. How familiar with Werner Herzog are you? To be honest, aside from the name, I haven't actually had a chance to watch any of his stuff. I just haven't sat down okay. and watched anything. Ooh, you're in for a Okay, ride. so you're, you're going to watch, because he's, he's an expert in documentaries and features, but I'm going to go with a feature. This is my favorite film of his. You're going to watch a film who's, uh, or a film which the story of how it's made is just as interesting as how. Is it Fitzcarraldo? Like, no, it's not, sadly. Uh, 
But you could do that as well if you would like, because there is a documentary about the making of Fitzcarraldo. But uh, similarly as strenuous of an experience, um, Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Which oh, this it's much shorter. That I, I almost went with Fitzcarraldo, but that's like three hours. I decided to give you something shorter. <laughs> and in my personal opinion, it's, it's Herzog's best. Um, this is the film that inspired works like Apocalypse Now. It's one of the craziest film experiences you may ever have. And you could just tell by looking at this and how it's made, you're going to be wondering, like, how in the hell did they make this movie? So, And this is one of the ones because he had a long-running collaboration with uh, Klaus Kinski, right? Yeah, who is a great actor, but one of the the worst types of human beings. But, uh, yeah, so... Uh, this is one of those instances where the two almost killed each other. Yeah, so that's that's a true thing. There was a strenuous relationship between the two, yet they kept working with one another. So I, I hope you enjoy this this trip into the jungles, rivers, and and the unknown you know, regions of the world and and of the human mind. So Aguirre, the wrath of God. So uh, Rachel, it's your turn next. James, what are you going to give Rachel? So I decided to give Rachel and. I've, I'm settling onto a theme also with individual picks. It's another no-budget film. Uh, it is Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench, which is the low-budget mm. debut of Damien Chazelle. Okay, I'm here for it. I've never heard of it, and I'm looking forward to it. It's a musical shot in a cinema verite style. I heard musical. I'm, I'm sold. That's one of the reasons I picked it. I was like, oh, this is a musical. She'll enjoy that. Yeah, it's it's it was made for sixty thousand dollars, and it's definitely it's another one of those instances you can tell he's going places. Okay, I am down for that. All right, so I guess it's my turn. So, Andreas, have you seen Hedwig and the Angry Inch? I hate to say this, I have not, but now I will. Now you're going to, yeah. So I, I've done research on it for various lists. I've uh, I've seen scenes of it, but I've never seen the full thing. Yeah, I I decided to go down the musical route, but I think you'll appreciate this one, and you'll have to watch it to find out why. But see the movie, not any of the recordings with Neil Patrick Harris. Those are great, but they're not the one I mean. I I am stoked. It's one that I've actually wanted to to have time to watch and that's not like an excuse i've been doing um all of my tv research for my top 100 television shows list so that's been extremely time consuming so that's one of those ones where once that list was finished i just wanted to watch whatever the hell my heart desired and that was one of them so thank you i'm really looking forward to this those are our suggestions to one another We've got an entire month to, to churn these out. So we've got Hedrick and Angry Inch. We've got, um, oh my goodness, what's it called? The Damien Chazelle. Guy and Madeline on a park bench. Yes. Sorry, uh, works trying to trying to email me. Sorry. We have Guy and, and Madeline on a park bench. And we also have a Giddy, the Wrath of God. Plus, we have uh, our, our fantastic... Uh, you know, shared film. I believe it's called Kabuki and NYPD. Sergeant Kabuki Man NYPD. Sergeant Kabuki Man and NYPD. That's a, that's a mouthful and a half. So you could not get a more varied selection than this. Either way, thank you for listening to the K Cut, and tune in next week for our next episode, and tune in a, in a month's time for our smorgasbord. So that was the K Cut, and now we're going into the L Cut. <laughs> <laughs>